You know, the story of our faith uh, reminds us that we are all children of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ to one another. We are family, and we are bound together by our faith in Christ. But like people of faith, even in the Bible, um, we too find that family life sometimes can get a little complex. Personality conflicts and disagreements and jealousies and all kinds of stuff happen in families and even sometimes in the church. So we come to worship today acknowledging uh, all of that baggage and yet grateful that God works um, uh, among us. God chooses us to be part of his family and most of all that God loves us unconditionally. So let that be uh, the basis for us just putting our hearts and minds into this place today. Pray with me, will you? Compassionate God, we marvel at how open you are to us. You know us as we really are. You understand all the ways that we bring pain into our own lives, and uh, you see the the ways that we bring pain into the lives of others sometimes. And yet you listen to us without judgment. You love us unconditionally. You accept us as your children. So help us to be generous with ourselves. Help us to uh, love ourselves as you love us so that we can learn from you and extend to others that transforming love in all the relationships that we have around us. God, we pray this, that you would join us in these moments of worship today and accept our praise and our worship in Christ's name. Amen. In the Gospel according to St. John, the 17th chapter contains one of the most extensive and profound prayers that we have on record of Jesus. And Jesus' whole life, as you know, was lived as a revelation of God, the Father, so that we would know who God is like and how God loves us and uh, how God acts in our behalf. And so it's appropriate, I think, that Jesus concluded his ministry and his teaching with a prayer. And what makes this prayer unique is that it is a prayer for unity. It's a prayer for oneness. Jesus prays for all of us who would be believers uh, following the teachings and the witness of the apostles and that we might share in this spirit of unity. And and that whole uh, piece of unity is for one purpose and one purpose only and so that we can honor and glorify and praise God. It's appropriate, I think, that we end this series with an appeal for unity within the church and that we seal that commitment uh, with receiving the sacrament of Holy Communion together today. And we'll get to all that in just a few moments, but let's pray together. God, we remember how Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And he also said, I tell you the truth, those who believe have everlasting life. God, we long for that day when Jesus will return to this earth as a triumphant king, when the dead in Christ will be raised to life and will see Jesus face to face. We anticipate that day because we know that he will heal all of our hurts. He will end our wars. He will make all the crooked paths in this world straight. And then we will join in that new song to the Lamb of God. He will be our all in all. Our righteousness our peace, and everything about this world in which we live will be made new. God, we can't wait for every eye on this planet to see at last that our world belongs not to the rich and powerful, not to the corrupt and the greedy, not to politicians or dictators, but to you and you alone. 
We love you this morning and we worship you. So open our hearts to all that you would have for us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Satan's greatest tool in undermining the work of any local church is disunity. Why do I believe that? Because in order for the church to function properly, a congregation must be unified in purpose and in passion. At the beginning of August, we started this five-week series and said that this would be a journey. It's a journey designed to discover and in some cases rediscover the privilege and the joy of being involved in a local church, whether you're a member or just an active participant. It's also a journey that I pray has led us to be to better church health. And if even one person in this congregation better understands the dynamics of a healthy and growing church, we will have a greater impact on the community and the world around us. This last step on the journey today is to understand that the culture of a local church is designed for unity. God desires for Christ followers to get along. That's not always the case though, is it? Many churches today are torn apart with infighting, with all kinds of strife, and, but that's not what the teachings of the New Testament had in mind. Back in 2014, you may remember the story, there was this story in the sports world about a problem on the Miami Dolphins football team. Richie Incognito and Jonathan Martin had every reason as teammates to be friends, but they were not. Incognito harassed and bullied Martin. He called him a racial slur in a voicemail that was played by every media outlet in the country. He even threatened to kill Martin and his family. Incognito claimed all of this was just locker room talk. It's just how the, the guys talk to one another in the NFL. Apparently, Martin didn't get that memo. He left his lucrative job citing emotional issues and fear for his life. Although we don't know all the details, it appears that if Martin has some culpability as well, he was far too passive in dealing with Incognito's threatening behavior. As a teammate, it appears he should have expressed how troubling those threats were to him. These two men had many reasons to get along. Uh, more, than to ha uh, more reasons than to have the toxic relationship that ultimately developed between them. Think about all the reasons they had to be friends. They were both football players. They played on the same team. They had the same head coach. They played offensive line, even played next to each other on the line. But both men were starters. Both had this desire to win. And yet somewhere along the way, one or both of them forgot that they played on the same team. And, how, and began to treat each other like they were someone from the opposing team. They forgot that the enemy was across the field. And you know, just like those players, we as members of a congregation in a local church also have plenty of reasons to work together toward the same goal. In Ephesians chapter four, the apostle Paul reminds us, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, in all, and living through all. You see, we do share some important things. We are a body of believers who share the same spirit, the same hope of eternity. 
with Jesus Christ. We share the same Lord, we share the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father of us all, and yet disunity and division is common in many churches today. Jesus said in John chapter 13, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, the world will know if we are followers of Jesus Christ or not by the way we act toward one another. When we become a Christian, God expects us to be part of his church, but when we become part of his church, he wants us to be a unifying presence there. The great basketball player Michael Jordan was once quoted as saying, talent wins games, but teamwork and intelligence wins championships. Sports teams with average talent can sometimes win championships. It doesn't matter how many superstars you have on a team if they can't play together as a team. See, unity is more than important, it's critical. Author William Barclay says, gospel cannot truly be preached in any congregation which is not one united band of brothers and sisters in Christ. When those of us in the church don't work together very well, the church is weaker on a whole. Jesus says in Mark chapter three, a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. See, unity is, in, is vital to a family. It's vital to the health of a church. One of the meanings of vital is that it's absolutely necessary. It's essential. We can't get along without it. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read by the, these words of the Apostle Paul. Therefore, I, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. See, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you to do something, to lead a life worthy of the calling you have received. And the word lead there literally means as you walk around. Worthy points to behavior that is suitable to the calling that we have received. So the question for us is, how do we behave in a way that is suitable or worthy of our calling? And in these verses, the Apostle Paul gives us five ways that we can do that. First, he says we are to be completely humble. We place the needs of others above our own. We don't insist on having rights that need to be met. In Philippians chapter two, he says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. You see, we are to model Jesus. We are to be humble. Secondly, we are to be gentle. The idea here is one of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It's not timidity. Both Moses and Jesus are referred to in scriptures as being meek. The term here in the original language is used to refer to a large animal, maybe a horse, that had been trained to be restrained. See, the power was still there, just was channeled to be useful for the task at hand. It's a term that means power under control. And then third, we're to be patient. A better translation may be long-suffering. You know, long-suffering is having or showing patience in spite of trouble, especially trouble caused by other people. The idea is that we have a long fuse, not a short one. Have you ever watched as an older dog plays with a a new puppy? That new puppy, uh, as they interact together, it's hyperactive. It's constantly nipping the older dog because of the immaturity inherent in a puppy. And they roll around and they play together. And the older dog, what do they do? They just lay there and take it. No matter what kind of behavior that puppy exhibits, the older dog is long-suffering in dealing with that puppy. That's our call to patience. Fourth, we're to bear with one another in love. That means we put up with other people's weaknesses and shortcomings, and we do it with a spirit of Christ-like love. What is Christ-like love? Well, the Apostle Paul uses the same term here, agape, that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable keeps no record of being wronged, does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful. It endures through every circumstance, prophecy, and speaking in unknown languages, and special knowledge will become useless. But love will last forever. And then finally, we are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort translates the idea that um, we should work quickly. We should work diligently to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's something that's important for us to maintain. And we do it through the bond of peace. Peace is what binds us together. See, everyone in a church, you and I included, must contribute to the unity of a church. We have that responsibility. We are to be a source of unity, not a divisive force. And we are to love our fellow church members unconditionally. That doesn't mean that we'll always agree with everyone all the time, but it does mean we're willing to sacrifice our own preferences to keep that unity in the church. When we seek unity, we demonstrate God's love. Colossians 3.14, above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. See, unity is significant in this church, or in any church, and we should always be asking ourselves, are we doing our part? But let's be honest, there are also some barriers to unity in every congregation. The three big ones I wanna talk about today for just a moment. 
First one is gossip. Gossip and other negative talk, the Bible says, is destructive to a church. Few things can destroy the unity of a church like gossip. And gossip is just simply when we talk behind other people's back. We pass on tales that might or might not be true. The goal of gossip is always to damage someone else's reputation. It seeks to do harm to the person being gossiped about. There are two good ways to handle gossip. One is don't be the source of it. If you have any doubt whether something is gossip or not, don't mention it. Keep your tongue under control. Ephesians 4.29 says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good, be helpful, so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And then if someone begins to gossip, just simply gently stop them. You don't have to be harsh in your response. Just kindly say that you would rather not hear any gossip and hope it wouldn't continue to spread. You see, others in the church will know that gossip is not tolerated by your actions. The congregation needs to be a place of joy, a place of unity. So the best way to defeat gossip, just not listen to it. Proverbs 20, verse 19 says, a gossip goes around telling secrets, so don't hang out with chatterers. The second destructive element is constant criticism. Some people are just never satisfied. Something is always wrong. They are known as hypercritical people. They're excessive in their disapproval of people, of programs. They condemn, they complain all the time. But in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about those things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Jesus says that gossip and overcritical attitudes come from the evil that's within our hearts. In Luke's gospel, he tells us a person, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. And then third, unity won't happen if we have an unforgiving spirit. Too many times we carry around anger, we carry around hurt over something a person has said or done. Some people get angry, some people get hurt over something a leader has said or done or failed to. <coughs> the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. It's a great story that Jesus tells in Matthew's gospel about forgiveness, it's in chapter 18. And Matthew records it this way, he said, then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often do I need to forgive someone who sins against me, seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. And then he goes on to tell the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought into him who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I'll pay it all. And then his master was filled with pity for him 
and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor couldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. When the king called in the man who had forgiven, he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the king, angry king, sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his debt, his entire debt. And that's what my heaven, this is Jesus' final words in this parable, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Pretty strong words. There are three important principles about forgiveness in this story. First principle is that true forgiveness goes beyond any reasonable human limits. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time forgiving people even seven times. By then, I'm exasperated with them. I'm ready to be finished with them. Jesus is saying, stop keeping score. He's telling us that we can't place limits on our forgiveness. The second important principle is that, we, that we have to remember is just how much God has forgiven us. You know, I think about this servant. He owed the king 10,000 talents. One talent was worth, um, one talent was approximately 6,000 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So 10,000 talents would have been the equivalent of about 16 and a half years wages for 10,000 people. We could say that the servant represents you and me and the king represents God in the story. And when we realize just how completely God has forgiven all of our sins, it ought to produce in us an attitude of forgiveness toward other people. And then the last important principle is that we should forgive others as completely and lavishly as God has forgiven us. What happened with this forgiven servant? He went and chased down another of the king's servants who owed him what amounted to be a paltry sum of money compared to the debt that the king had forgiven him. And when his fellow servant asked for mercy, the servant that had been forgiven by the king had him thrown in jail. However, other servants of the king saw what happened. They immediately went to the king and told him about it. And the king was extremely angry at the first servant and sent him to prison after all. And the king said, you shouldn't treat other people or you should treat other people the way that I treated you. So here's what Jesus needs us to learn out of this story. If you want to be forgiven by God, you have to forgive others. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says, if you, for, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. You know, every local church is made up of imperfect people, imperfect leaders, Church unity is torn apart when we refuse to forgive each other. Christ loved us so much that he died on a cross to forgive us. And now as he has forgiven us, so he invites us to forgive others. Let me close with a story. J.R. Tolkien wrote a trilogy of fantasy books called Lord of the Rings. Perhaps you've read the series. In his first book, Tolkien 
describes the camaraderie of a diverse group of people who were banded together by a common cause. They were called the Fellowship of the Ring, which is also the title of the first book. And their quest is to destroy the power of the Dark Lord and the powers lodged in his ring. Though they, offer, uh, they, though they differ in nearly every way, racially and physically and temperamentally, they are united in their opposition to the Dark Lord. In a section of the book omitted in the movie adaption of that novel, a heated conflict breaks out among the fellowship and axes are drawn and bows are bent and harsh words are spoken and disaster nearly strikes this small band. But when peace at last prevails, a wise counselor says, indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides all those who oppose him. You know, today the Dark Lord of this world still shows his power. And that power is shown when there is discord among the followers of Jesus Christ. Our call is to unity. As we have done in all this series, we're going to end the message with a pledge. If you choose to join your voices with mine, that's great. If you choose not to, that's okay. But we take a pledge as a congregation to uh, find new ways to live together as a fellowship of Christ's body in this place. So here's the pledge. If you want to join your voices with mine, here goes. I will seek to be a source of unity for the sake of the gospel. I will create unity by serving others, remembering that Christ served me by going to the cross. It is not about my preferences and desires. I know there are no perfect leaders, staff, or church members. I will not be a source of negative talk. Instead, I will forgive those who hurt me. My church is about more than me. Pray with me, will you? Holy God, we do live in the joy and the wonder of your love. However, we find it so easy to take each other for granted. So often we are tempted to cut the ropes of love that bind us together. Other times we take life far too much for granted and all that you have graciously provided for us. So remind us today that one of the marks of our discipleship is our willingness to surrender everything to you. Help us to learn how to care for each other, to love each other, and to restore what is broken with the powerful cords of compassion and forgiveness. For we lay ourselves on your altar this day. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.